Welcome to the Macomb Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners to what's happening in Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. I'm your host, Michael Unterberg, here on emergency notice with today's co-host, Benji Davis. How are you, Benji? Riveting. How are you? You are riveting. I am riveted by you. I didn't say that. It's a riveting moment is what I meant to say. It is. It is a very exciting moment. We had a whole other episode planned for this week, but we're going to delay it as the deal of the century was released by the Trump administration. And that, of course, is capturing all the headlines. Do you think, Benji, that on one foot you can sort of summarize the... uh, and, And we are not recording in studio because this is like a... Wednesday emergency recording, so I apologize if the quality is not our usual Ben recorded quality. Uh, Benji, do you ha- can you summarize what uh, the, the the key insights of the deal? What I understood, and I haven't read what was posted last night, although I tried as best as I could to review it because it was posted, and then I was teaching at nine o'clock, so I tried doing a class on it by getting and it essentially we just put up the map and then we talked about it. Uh, it seems to reflect 100% the Israeli consensus from the center all the way to the right. In other words, it's, it's the pretty standard two-state deal, but totally from the Israeli perspective, it's, it's the maximum Israeli version of the two-state solution. It's where Bibi Netanyahu was in 2009 when he gave his Bar Ilan speech, um, all of the requests for the Palestinians that if you want a state, you have to meet all of these requests. Um, we're essentially going to follow the model of even Rabin during Oslo or even the loan plan after the end of the Six-Day War, which is Israel wanted to keep the buffer zone a secure eastern border between Jordan and Israel. So essentially, Israel can have secure borders against the rest of the Middle East. And Israel wanted to not control the main Arab population zones. So the loan plan originally proposed that the major Arab populations would then be connected back to Jordan and what other mechanism you can come up with. Um, Rabin came up with Medinat Minus, is I think what they say in Hebrew, like kind of like a half state where they'll have some sort of autonomy uh, because the main idea was Israel shouldn't rule over other people that we wouldn't want to give citizenship to to sustain our ethnic democracy. And today the, the Trump plan is kind of just solidifying those ideas by saying, okay, the Israelis, you can keep all the settlements you've built. You'll have the Jordan Valley as a secure uh, border. And you will, we're just going to call it a Palestinian state, even if you won't necessarily. And Bibi was smiling and all happy. And it's kind of, it's, in other words, it's the Israeli starting point. It's concepts that Israelis have proposed in the past. And it's saying, if you take out all the Palestinian counter arguments, this is what the two state plan would look like. Right. But it's not really a peace deal because it's just saying, okay, Israelis, whatever you think, we agree. That's cool. We'll call it a peace deal. But even as Trump said in his speech, if you uh, watched or listened to it last night, he's like, I get how deals work. The other side also has to feel happy. So we want the Palestinians to somewhat feel happy. But if you've ever followed what's been happening with the conflict, we can easily come to the conclusion that it I mean, it's such a non-starter, especially by the fact that the Trump administration is the one proposing it, and they're not kosher in the Palestinian eyes ever since they recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. So they can't really, it seems to me, can't be a mediator um, for actual peace negotiations, even if we, the Israelis, kind of like what they see the end of the conflict looking like in this supposed deal. Now, they're not stupid, and they must know that. So I have two questions, and that's what I want to spend the bulk of this discussing. First of all, 
I think you're right. Anyone who's educated on this issue knows that it's a non-starter for the Palestinians. So as educated people, why is this a non-starter for the Palestinians? To a lot of people, this looks fair. It does give them a state. Why is this a non-starter? If you listen to the Palestinians, why is this a non-starter is question one. And question two, assuming that the Trump administration and Bibi Netanyahu aren't oblivious morons to what's going on, then what are their possible intentions for offering this? Like what are their, what, what, this obviously isn't going anywhere. Although the Palestinians are given now, they have four years before they have to respond. Settlements will be frozen during those four years so that agreements can be made to make this work. In other words, it, it is... are frozen in the areas which would be their future state. That's what I understood from it. Well, it, it called... Israel would get to annex, essentially. It, it can be willy-nilly and do whatever it wants. Sure. Within the area that all settlements, no Jews have to move for this plan to work, basically, or almost no. They can build an Efrat as much as they want. That's what the Americans are saying. Um, but in any of the main areas that the Palestinians would get, the Israelis can't touch. And it seems like Israel can annex those things, the, the Jordan Valley, the Jewish settlements, as quickly as they want. That doesn't seem to have to wait four years, but any expansion of Jewish territory would have to wait while the Palestinians agree. So there is some, while there is some lip service paid to offering the Palestinians time to consider it, I don't think anyone seriously thinks they will. So again, my two questions are, uh, why won't they? It, it looks, from a Western perspective, it looks like better than what they have now, which is nothing. They have no independence. They have no sovereignty. Why shouldn't they want it? So why? How can we explain the Palestinian thinking? And the other question is, why, why are they doing this? Like, why, are they, why did they call a big meeting to present something that is dead on arrival? Which one do you want to handle first? Right. So the first one, it really dismisses, I think, based on my understanding of Palestinian political identity, the main foundation of Palestinian political identity, which is Nakba in 1948 is this all-encompassing event where there's collective memory, and it seems that the goal of Palestinian national aspirations um, is to undo the results of 1948, which is the catastrophe of losing 78% of their homeland. And then the theme of Nakba continues in 1967 when the other 22% of historic Palestine, which was ruled by other Arabs, Egyptians or Jordanians, was now taken over by the Israelis and they call 1967 Naqsa the setback, which is the continuation of this catastrophe of, of Nakba. So now uh, the two-state solution negotiations for the last 52 years have been of this 22% that the Israelis took over in 1967, then they're building settlements there, and then maybe they'll have a state there. But the Palestinians, for the most part, don't really talk about undoing the results of 1967 as in terms of their political discourse, but it's undoing the results of 1948. So That's true. But even among the Palestinian discussion of undoing 60s, you're right. The majority of Palestinians want to undo 48. But even among the, even among, like in the Oslo process, when they were taught, why did, Oslo failed in 2000, or the Ehud, Ehud Omer offer in 2008 was rejected, was in the context of, look, at least how can we make 67 work better for you? And right. those were rejected. Correct, because the starting point for the Palestinians isn't 67, it's 48. If you just look at, there's a great article from Mosaic Magazine a few years ago, summarized 20 years of polling of Palestinian society, which is really how I get to my understanding of Palestinian identity, which is about half of Palestinians over those decades being polled supported a two-state solution. But when asked, is that the end of the conflict? They said, absolutely not, and not until there's a right of return for the refugees of the 1948 war, which it's are... It's two-thirds. It's two-thirds. Right, which is descendants. 
Yeah, yeah. Two-thirds of Palestinians. Uh, the right of return is an absolute demand, meaning five, over five million Palestinian refugees have to be, for a peace deal to be made, over five million Palestinians who live outside of the state of Israel have to be allowed to live inside the state of Israel and given full citizenship, which would throw, which would mean Israel would not be a Jewish country, which would mean, and, and this peace plan just, not only does it reject the right of return, but it rejects that those people are due any compensation. It puts no obligation on Israel to be concerned with settling people in refugee camps. In other words, for what the Palestinians have expressed as a sine qua non of their deal, which Israel is unacceptable, this deal like just sort of brushes away as nothing. In other words, the tone and tenor of this deal is, look, when are you guys going to recognize that you lost? Make something out of what you have. And that's not where the Palestinians are. It reject. It's not just that the Palestinians weren't in the room. It rejects the very idea of what it means to be Palestinian. I think in two thousand and twenty, uh, which is super problematic. If anyone's read the book, and I highly recommend it, Micha Goodman's Catch sixty seven, he comes to the realization, which I agree, which is we're never going to. Not we're never. I don't think the Palestinians will ever give up on their right of return, and that if a whole self-identified nation says that our political identity is rooted in this idea of enduing the results of 1948, how can we expect that to change? And I think it's important to mention that also Israeli political identity is also essentially a response to 1948, but the complete opposite, not to undo it, but rather to sustain the results. Correct. Right. The basis of this peace deal is essentially how do you sustain the results of 1948 where Israel exists as a Jewish democratic state in the most part of the homeland that it can keep? So we have to recognize that one side wants to keep the results of 48 and one side wants to undo it. And unfortunately, this Trump peace deal only is really dealing with Israeli political identity, even if its main um, argument is this is how we can establish a Palestinian state. But the Palestinians, they're not in that place. They want the entire land of what they call Palestine to be theirs, and they're not giving up on that dream. And they think that dream is achievable within the next century or two at most, that they will have full control over the entire area of what they call Palestine, of what we call Israel, and, uh, and disputed territory. And so until they give up on the reality of that dream, which the majority of Palestinians say, it, it, it will come. We don't want to take a small deal when we that will hold us back from getting the whole enchilada. That's where the Palestinian street is. That's where Palestinian leadership is. All of these talks around the margins aren't going to change that basic reality. So it's just a waste of time, it seems, to propose such a deal. Oh, so great segue to the second question, which was, why are they doing it? What possible motives can, and I'm assuming, you know, you're talking about some basic, you know, intelligent people in the room, why were why have they been working three years on this to release it this week? What are the motives? It's just politics, 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 politics. So let's assume that that's part of it. And by politics, you mean? There are two elections happening in 2020 that are very important for the two main protagonists in this story. Donald Trump has an election in November 2020, and he wants to distinguish himself a, from the Democrats, which seem to be quite left on Israel today. He wants, at another point, to really engage his base, which are evangelical voters, that Israel is such a great issue to always remind them that Trump's good on Israel. And third, the impeachment proceedings, anything to distract the American electorate from the impeachment proceedings seems to be good. And fourth, 
um, supporters, financial supporters, donors of the Republican Party that are in the pro-Israel post-settlement world think is effective. And then five, if we really want to get into it, it seems that a lot of people that are close to Trump seem to be modern Orthodox Jews that find this issue close to him and Trump values loyalty. And so of his former lawyers and his son-in-law say, well, this is important to us. Trump says, okay, you're loyal to me. I'll be loyal to you. If you want to pursue this issue, go do it. You have a team, you make a plan, I'll support you. And when the time is right politically for me to take advantage of it, then we'll do it. So the modern Orthodox pro-Israel... My guess is he's aiming it towards evangelical Christians who support Israel more than... Correct. But who came up with the plan was the modern Orthodox was Jews, the modern Orthodox New York Jews, uh, sophisticated, super intelligent, highly successful people that I think know may not be Middle East experts, but you know, when they want to tackle an issue, they can problem solve. Yeah, by the way, they went through the issue very thoroughly. In other words, if you look at the document, they know the facts on the ground. They're, they're very well versed. Right. It's an excellent document. It's very well prepared. You can tell that time, resources, investment went into it. But I think that's the context, at least from the Trump American side. Okay, well, why do they do this, even if it's clear that it wasn't going to see the light of day in terms of ending the conflict? From the Israeli perspective, uh, it seems to be that there was coordination between the prime minister's team and, and Trump's team. It can't be any coincidence that the hour that the attorney general in Israel submits the indictment against Benjamin Netanyahu to the courts was the same time that the speech were being given in the White House. I think... Also the same time that the impeachment opening statements were being finished against President Trump. There does seem to be a thumb, a political thumb on the scale, which, by the way, that's what people do. I mean, that's what politicians do. That's... I, I Is that the only thing going on? Is it just... From the Israeli side? From from no from the people who put the plan together for the past three years, have they been only planning to use this to help the Trump and Netanyahu administrations politically? I'm assuming that there is actual belief that this could be good um, for the region. I mean, you could look at it. Okay, obviously the Palestinians are going to say no, but maybe there's a way to somehow uh, move along both American and Israeli interests in terms of vis-a-vis the Arab world and the modern uh, moderate states. So you had uh, the representatives of Bahrain, Oman, and the United Arab Emirates there. You had a... Um, Not Saudi Arabia, noticeably. Well, I mean, if Bahrain's there, then essentially it's they're there on behalf of the Saudis. Right? Yeah, but if I'm reading the tea leaves, if, oh, Bahrain there being means something, then the Saudis not being there also means no, I something. Th- I think it's the Saudis testing the Arab street. So now the, the Saudis came out with a statement, uh, I think it was today, or I saw it today on Twitter, that said, um, okay, this is a good start. We think the sides should have two state. they should negotiate for a two-state solution. That's not criticizing America for saying that Israel can annex. No, it was a modest attaboy, I would call it. Like, it's okay, attaboy. You're very good. Very different than a decade ago. Yeah. Right? So maybe they're trying to move the goalposts further. Um, and if we can create... Um, because if the shared interest is really about Iran, right, uh, then we can try and put the pa- table the Palestinian issue once and for all by saying, okay, this is what Israel thinks. We'll put it forward. It's sensible. It's what the West thinks. It's what the modern Arab student states are like. Okay, this is what we think two-state solution looks like. The Palestinians don't want it. Trump said, okay, forget it. Like, you, you're, you're done, right? And right. now let's focus on the real issues, which is Iran. And even the Monday meeting that Bibi had with Trump before Gantz met with Trump about the peace plan, they even came out, I think it was shared statements or maybe sources said on Twitter, that they didn't even discuss the peace plan on that Monday meeting. What did they discuss? Iran and international court issues. 
Yeah, I think I think that there is an intention to reset. Whether whether you call it moving the goalposts, I don't know. I, I think they're trying to reset the conversation about Israel Palestine by saying that the conversation has shifted too far into unreasonable things. Let's reset. Let's reset the terms of the discussion of this would be a viable Palestinian state and build from there, as opposed to having the conversation be Israel's doing everything terrible. Uh, how do we get? How do we end the occupation now? And then moving, arguing from that position. In other words, it's saying let's turn instead of saying end the occupation. How do you do that? Let's start with let's make a Palestinian state that would look like this. Why aren't the Palestinians accepting it? I do think they're trying to, and you can argue that you think it's effective or not. I think what they're trying to do is reframe the conversation to something that's much more on Israel's terms. Uh, and, and, and knowing that the Palestinians won't accept it is part of that conversation. That, that look, when we propose an actual state, it doesn't work. So why are you talking about Israel leaving? In other words, it, they're not trying to actually change what's happening right now because they know they can't. They're trying to change the conversation about why we're in a moment of dysfunction. And they're trying to put the burden onto the Palestinians. Now, why they think they're doing that by excluding them from the conversation, I'm not sure. They're trying to reframe it to a more Israel-friendly conversation. I think by excluding the Palestinians, they're saying it, it, it's sort of a paternalistic dismissal. In other words, you guys, we're, we're giving you a hand up. You've been beaten. You've lost. We're, we're being magnanimous in victory, and we're saying we're going to give you a shot at a prosperous future. And if you don't accept it, then everyone's going to look at you as, as idiots because everyone knows this is in, in your interest. But that logic makes no sense because the Arabs reject Peel in 37 and Partition in 47. I'm not saying in terms of showing that the Palestinians are rejectionists because it seems in history they are, but the logic that it will show that their rejectionism is illogical and therefore people shouldn't side with the Palestinians doesn't seem to hold true based on history. Well, I would go even further and say that their behavior and their rejection isn't illogical if you look at it from their perspective. From their perspective, Israel is a colonial aberration. It's a last European attempt to hold on to land in the Middle East. It's bound to fail. It's just a question of time. We out weighted the Ottomans, we outweighed the British, we'll outweigh the Jews, and then we'll have our own state of Palestine. Why am I bargaining over, over these ridiculous terms when I can just wait and get the whole thing? And that whole viewpoint is solidified that the plan is being introduced where? In Washington, D.C., by right. the great imperial power of the United States of America. Right. Right. So, so it, in a way, the Palestinian perspective... If you look at it that way, it makes complete sense why it doesn't hold water. Why even? It's not a starting point. Uh, I'm not saying I agree with. No, the, I don't agree with it, but it logically makes complete sense. I would like to. I would. I guess what I, I'm trying to do a few things. I'm trying to argue that it can't just be politics. People don't spend three years with real research that you can see the results. And and although they're clearly not listening to the Palestinians well. Uh, both you can see by how often they meet with them, but also you can see it in the document. They say things in ways that are specifically insulting to Palestinians. You know, uh, well, Israel exchanged land for peace with Egypt. Well, e even Egypt didn't see that as an exchange. It saw it as a return of the Sinai to Egypt, what they thought of as theirs. So it's it's so written from Israel's perspective that it's not, and it's not in diplomatic language. But I, I'm just trying to get at what the intentions were 
something deeper than it's just politics, which it is. I, I don't think anyone... The moment is political. However, the intentions of the United States are an outside actor trying to solve the territorial dispute in the Holy Land dates back to before the establishment of the State of Israel. It's an ongoing international interest in a conflict that Mati Friedman says is not very... Like, it's not a big conflict in the grand scheme of things. You know, 100,000-something people have died here over the course of a century of conflict, while 600,000 people died in the Syrian civil war in the last decade. Right? Jerusalem, he says, is a safer city, according to the murder rate, than Portland, Oregon, one of the safest cities in America. So you, And we've had relative quiet here since the ending of the knife intifada, which took the lives of, let's say, 30 people over a year in the Jerusalem area, mostly around 2016. So actually... As a Jerusalem resident, maybe you as an Efrat resident would say, it's a little scary that this is coming out. Like, it, it seems to be that the Palestinian street, we hope, I think is just apathetic and like not going to go out and be violent and protest and then IDF responses, because that, that wouldn't be good for us and where we live. And it, it could be a little scary, but we don't want this to destabilize the region because really we're at a pretty stable moment where there's quiet in the West Bank, relative quiet coming from Gaza. Um, so why mess that up? Well, it's, it's, no, we're managing the conflict, so just let us manage it and don't bother us because we're both absolutists in what we believe and our response to 1948 and the Palestinians' response to 1948, it, it's not going to change. Is, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Michael Goodman says, so let's just figure out a way to make the conflict as small as possible knowing that you can't solve it. It's intractable conflict. For the foreseeable future. Right. I... I just we have to figure out a way to live together while not, you know, we have utopian visions that gives us meaning and passion and who we are and our identities and our political visions of the world. And they're very much contradictory and they can't coexist. So I think you're right that this hubris is 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 historically well precedented of Western power saying, oh, we'll solve this for you kids. This one's a little bit different in that uh it's Americans, it's modern Orthodox Jews working with Israelis to say we'll do it. But again, it's not generated by Israel. So A, it's not going to work. And B, especially if, and, and, and here I'm curious what you think. I'm, I'm terrible at predicting. The question I have now is, you know, in other words, will this inflame the Palestinian street and cause more harm than it, than it does good? To me, it's connected to the issue of will Israel move forward? on annexation. Right. If Israel annexes settlements, if Israel annexes the Jordan Valley, which Bibi says he's going to fast track, which Naftali Bennett, our defense minister, says he's going to fast track, even though we don't have a fully functional mandated government. Uh, they can't fund daycares because we're in a moment of transition, but they're going to annex a territory which it's been considered disputed for 52 years, and we've had Bibi in power the last 11 years, and he's never moved towards annexation. Only after he's been indicted for corruption, bribery, and breach of trust five weeks before the third election in 11 months, <laughs> it seems to be 100% political opportunism. And I am quite scared of what the results would be after the annex if they, that annexation actually happens. Well, that's why I'm skeptical that he's going to do it. I, I, I am genuinely skeptical that actual action will take place. I mean, de facto, we've annexed those settlements. Like, I, I vote. You live in an Israeli city, essentially. There's nothing... Efrat doesn't look any different than any other city of ten to 15,000 people anywhere in Israel. So de jure, according it to... It costs lots of money to live there. You live in a suburb of Jerusalem. You want to yeah. live in a house in Efrat, bring a million bucks with you. 
it's not good. But any, but but <laughs> you're making me nervous. But the the my point is, it, functionally, we already live as if it's annexed. To to actually change that status, in theory, could inflame. Why do it? It doesn't. It doesn't help us as a state. It will make the citizens less safe, in my opinion. Why do it? Because it'll make his base thrilled, and it'll make evangel- in, right. in Israel. It'll make Bibi's base thrilled in Israel, and it'll make evangelical Christians thrilled no. in America. Obviously, but it's just political opportunism. I, uh, you said opportunism, funny. I'm just going to call you out on it. Right. Well, you know, it's been a long day. I um, hear you. Um, no, I, uh, the Kholavan um, perspective on this is, okay, Trump plan makes sense. It's a great starting point. We're going to coordinate with Jordan, the international community, after the elections. That's responsible. I mean, I don't want to sound like a, you know, vote Kholavan. And I mean, I guess I'll be honest, I voted for them the last two elections, and I guess I'll vote for them. Full disclosure, but that's... But yeah, but I, as in, because I, it, for me, it seems to be the consensus of the Israeli street, which is both Likud voters and Kholavan voters, that they're the two main parties, and more than half people... Well, that's what's so them. funny. The whole idea of, well, America says we can annex, so let's annex. Wait, America's not like our daddy. There's an yes. international community. It, There's nations all over the world that aren't America. There's an Israeli street, which has opinions that may not want that there's there's so many reasons we're like wait because trump says we can we can yeah that's what bothers me the most and i asked my class last night does this reek of imperialism like it like why are they tell like if we want to do this let's do it this is our country this is our land we should be able to do it but do it in a responsible fashion that makes sure it benefits us this doesn't seem to be responsible and it doesn't seem to benefit us well that's why my prediction is and again i'm such a bad predictor but my prediction is nothing practical will be done this will remain a photo op because the implementation of any of it is so fraught with difficulty that uh it's surface shenanigans that won't result in actual changes on the ground and then within a few years we'll be talking about this the same way we talked about the hubris of the uh, uh, John, uh, what's his name, Kerry plan that he's going to solve it in nine months or the Condoleezza Rice plan that she was going to solve it in a year, right. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, going all the way back to, you know, Sykes and Picot that we're going to make. Like, I, I, I think this will end up in the dustbin of history without taking action. If there is action unilaterally taken by the Israelis, then that will have repercussions that will be felt, I think. So I'm not, without predicting which one it will be, those I think either it'll be practically ignored, although rhetorically used by the Israelis, and then it'll just disappear. Or if if the government takes action, which again I agree with you, just seems bonkers. I don't think they will. But if they do, that in theory could lead to chaos in the street. Although that's what all the pundits said, uh, 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 making Jerusalem the capital would do. Uh, you know, all all the all the those are symbolic things. This is. Well, maybe this is symbolic. It's symbolic. Annexing, annexing Jewish settlements in the West Bank is symbolic. The Jordan Valley is, is a bigger step. Making permanent Sahal presence in the Jordan Valley and taking it over as Israeli. But is annexing, you know, Beit El, it seems to be more than symbolic because it really is problematic in terms of a contiguous Palestinian state. Like, if you look at that map, like, what state could ever function like that? It's just a bunch of blobs connected with roads and enclaves of citizens of other country in the heart of your country. It's funny. People on Twitter were drawing... Yeah, well, people on Twitter were drawing it. When you look at it on the Trump plan map, so it's Israel and Palestine together, when you just draw the Palestinian state independently, it looks bonkers because it's all these weird little pieces. Right. So that's what... 
And you can't expect to take out hundreds of thousands of Israeli settlers at this point. So it seems to be the most realistic. People should be able to stay in their homes. Um, maybe it should be that the Palestinian state doesn't need to be Yudenrein. You know, I mean, yeah. look, uh, by the way, Israel has 1.8 million citizens of Israel that are Arab and they vote in the Knesset and there's Supreme Court justices and university heads and mayors. But if you're talking in the hypothetical, if this would bring actual peace, I think you have, I mean, this is the Israeli right supporting this plan, right? If this plan would bring actual peace, if this two-state would mean secession of hostilities, no more worried about sending your kids on the roads, so Israelis would embrace it because we'd be living with peaceful neighbors. It's when you get down to the practical reality of it and the political difficulty of how do we create the politics of perception and talk about things when the reality is nothing's going to change. And, and, and that puts politicians in a weird part. By the way, I mean, this is... If I were to draw a two-state solution, this is what I would draw, right? Like, this is my dream. It just ignores what Palestinians want and care about. So it, it's, it's... So then maybe you wouldn't draw that if you actually thought it would end the conflict. Well, I, I might offer it as the beginning of the conversation. I don't know that I would... I, I don't know I could enter into... I don't know that I could... In other words, what America's saying is, okay, guys, negotiate this plan. This is your plan because we're America, which Palestinians are like... We don't care who you are. Like this either, the consensus has also become this has to be negotiated between Israelis and Palestinians. If that were a good Israeli starting point, well, it kind of was. That's what Oslo was. This is our starting point. And let's see. And, and those discussions got it much further. So that in 2000, Ehud Barak offered much more than this Trump plan, and it was rejected. And led to the second intifada. Bum, bum, bum. So hopefully that will not be happening starting next week if annexation does happen. And I guess we just have to wait and see. Yeah, I'm hoping and I think I, I think it's more probable, not because I hope it, but I think it's more probable that after all the sturm and drang of the discussion, which is meant to push our conversation away from indictment of BB yesterday and well, Trump it worked because this is what we're talking about an emergency podcast and not the fact that you have the first time a sitting prime minister with an indictment for bribery, fraud and breach of trust that's going to stand trial in the next two to four months. Yeah, but we weren't going to do an episode on that anyway because we've done episodes in the past. We were going to wait till it developed. I, I, I will point out that the indictment was yesterday. And so people who said that Bibi was indicted months ago, that was when Mandelbit announced he would, I'm being very right. pedantic, Mandelbit announced he would indict. Bibi was given his right to a hearing. Um, a hearing for immunity. He realized he was going to lose it yesterday. He yesterday withdrew his request for immunity and Mandelbit, without missing a beat, sent in the indictments within hours. Well, it was a 200-meter walk from his office to the justice ministry in Jerusalem. So he said it was just, you know, just walked it over. It's pretty practical. But why I, I think it was really coordinated, and this is, I, I wanted to say this earlier, is I think Bibi knew he was going to request immunity. He knew he wasn't going to get it. Uh, he had this plan knowing he would go to D.C. on this particular date. Then Yuli Edelstein says, okay, we'll bring in the Knesset plenary to meet on this specific date. And then... He would withdraw that specific date, so he, knowing the indictment would be on the same day that you have this historic moment. Would and you? It, it seemed to be, even if Gantz found a way to kind of get out of it, you know, kind of scot-free without so many political repercussions, it, it, BB's plan worked to the best of his ability. I mean, but now he is uh, a or, you know, he is... Some, indicted. Yeah, he's indicted. So he's going to have a court date. Yeah, innocent until proven guilty. Whether that'll be, when that'll be, we'll have to figure out over the course of the next few months as the Israelis figure it out. Uh, but I don't know. But it, it, but that, that's how you play the game of politics. And one last thing. Is Nama Issa Sakhar coming back on a plane with Bibi tonight from Russia? 
That's what we're waiting to see now. And BB would have had had one hell of a week. What's sad is all this stuff was catalyzed by political desires and an election and not the fact that Nama needs to come home and we want to have peace and end the conflict. And it shouldn't be because someone wants to get elected. Well, I'm going to be maybe a little more optimistic and say the reason democracy works is it puts in the cynical self-interest of its leaders to do things that make the people happy. And so while that makes us a little bit cynical, let's be glad that we live in societies where the, in order to get our votes, they have to kiss our tuchuses and give us what we want. That's what makes, I think, a stable, so better... a lot of tushy kissing in Israel recently, then. Okay. Well, they, listen, if they want to work for me and they want my vote, then they have to come and give me what I want. That's, or, or at least the majority of people, I think that's what the system is designed to do. So, again, thank you for listening. This was our breaking news episode. We miss Alan, we miss Matt, but this is how this is how it came about. I apologize that the sound quality isn't going to be uh, up to snuff, but we thought it was more important to get this episode out now, and we'll resume with our regularly scheduled episodes going forward. So thank you so much, Benji. Thank you. Thank you, intern Yona, for hanging out and uh, making sure we didn't get out of control and keeping us from punching each other. I don't think that was going to happen. It uh, probably wasn't. Bye-bye.